If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Let me read all the way from chapter 3, verse 1 uh, to verse 17. I'll be preaching on verses 12 to 17, but I'll read from 3, 1 to 17. Hear now the words of the living God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Join me one more time in prayer. Father, we need your help. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies. Unite our heart in the fear of your name. Show us Jesus Christ, his grace, his love, his law, that we might come to him and receive new life. Help me to preach faithfully, clearly, affectionately, lovingly now. Help us to listen eagerly, humbly, attentively. Lord, bless your word as it goes out to your glory, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it would be hard to overstate <clears throat> how central to the Apostle Paul's thinking uh, the doctrine of union with Christ by faith is. The doctrine that everyone who believes in Jesus is, by his Spirit, united to Jesus. That truth is absolutely fundamental to what the Apostle Paul teaches. Earlier this week, I read straight through the book of Colossians pretty quickly. Didn't take me long. Would recommend doing that. I found no less than 16 clear and explicit references to the believer's union with Christ by faith. It seems like even when Paul isn't talking about that doctrine front and center, it's somewhere in the background. We've noted over the past two weeks that in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul is calling the believers in Colossae, and by extension, brothers and sisters, he's calling us uh, to live in light of our union with Jesus Christ. Paul is calling us to live out the new identity 
the new life, the new creation status that we've been given through our faith-created union with Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in chapter 3. You may remember two weeks ago in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we saw that just like Jesus has died and has been raised and has ascended to sit at the right hand of God, just like Jesus is currently hidden but will soon be revealed in glory, Paul said that so we who believe in Jesus have died with Jesus. The penalty and the enslaving reign of our sin have been broken through his death. We have been raised with Jesus. We're alive with the transforming resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, our high priest sits at God's right hand, and our lives are wrapped up in Him. And when Jesus appears soon in all of His glory, we're going to appear with Him, glorious, like He is. And so Paul tells us to seek or to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is. We're to define who we are and what we're about in terms of our union with Christ. You may remember last week, chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Uh, We saw that because through our union with Jesus, we have put off our old self, right? The self that was enslaved to sin, the self that died through Jesus' death. Uh, Paul says that because we've put off the old self and put on the new self, renewed in the image of God like Christ is, uh, Paul says that because of that, we are to put to death and to put off the sins that we used to live in. Sins like sexual immorality and anger and lying and prejudice. I remember Paul told us to put off or to take off our old sinful practices like an article of clothing that no longer belongs to or fits us. Remember the image of taking off the anger jacket. Well, in our passage this morning, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, uh, look with me at the first three words of our passage there. Paul writes, put on then. You see, in, in this passage, Paul is giving us the positive flip side of the mainly negative instructions from last week. After telling us to take off the metaphorical clothes of our past sinful lives, Uh, We see Paul telling us this week about the virtues, about the godliness, about the character, the Christ-likeness that we're to put on. Christian, Paul is telling you what to wear as a Christian morally. These are the habits, the characteristics, the qualities, the interests that are the proper expression of our new life in union with Jesus. And as we'll see in a moment, Lord permitting, Paul is not just concerned about our individual moral clothing. Paul is deeply concerned about our corporate identity as a church, as one united new man in Jesus. Paul is deeply concerned about the relationships of Christian brothers and sisters with one another. Each of us who has been united to Jesus... In a secondary way, we've been united to one another who've also been united to Jesus. We are parts of the same body, Paul says. And Paul wants us to treat each other like God has treated us. So this morning, I want us to see in our passage five things that Paul says ought to shape the new life of God's people in this passage, five things that must shape our new life together, both individually as Christians uh, and corporately as a local church. So five-point sermon. First point, longest point, verses 12 to 14. Paul says that the life of God's people must be shaped by the love of Christ. The love of Christ. That's a thing that the first thing that we need to see ought to shape our lives together. Look there at verse 12. Paul says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Right? You see, Paul starts down a list of qualities that Christians must exercise toward each other. He tells them to put on this and that. But did you notice that once again, before Paul tells us what to do, Paul reminds us one more time about the grace of God in Christ. Right? Paul doesn't just say, put on then compassionate hearts. What does he say? Look there in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Paul is not like I was in my freshman year of college, putting in words to meet a word count so that he can turn the paper in. All of these words matter. Paul thinks that before you get told to put on compassion, you need to be reminded of some things. First, you, Christian, are God's chosen one. Church, you are God's chosen ones. Christian, listen, the Bible's teaching is that before the creation of the world, the all-wise, all-sovereign God, by his perfect foreknowledge, looked out through the world that he had yet to create. And in his sovereign foreknowledge, he saw you. He saw that you were a member of the race that had rebelled against him. God saw that you would not love him. God saw that you would defy his authority and complain against his kindness. God saw that you and I would break his law. God saw that you would not seek him. God saw all of your sin. And Christian, if you're a Christian, God chose you. God saw you not loving him, not seeking him. And God said, I want him. I want her. I will give my son Jesus so she can belong to me. I will crucify the Messiah so that he can be forgiven. Christian, you and the other Christians that you're called to love, the Christians you find hard to love, right? Your believing spouse, the church member who frankly annoys you, right? Your imperfect, very imperfect pastors, uh, the church member who has offended you or disappointed you, you and they are God's chosen ones. You are the ones on whom God, because he felt like it, decided to lavish mercy to his glory. When you're having trouble loving another believer, right? I, when I have trouble loving someone else, I think that I see their sin so clearly. I think that I see, man, exactly what is so wrong with that other person that I'm having trouble loving Brothers and sisters, we don't know the half of it, right? Their sin, and by the way, your sin, is worse than you could imagine. But God, knowing all of our sin, chose us to receive mercy at the cost of Jesus' death. We are God's chosen ones. But there's more. Look at verse 12. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones... Holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. One at a time here. Paul reminds the Colossians that because of God's grace in Christ, they are holy. That is to say, they are set apart. They are morally purified. And they are specially belonging to God. The saints, if you belong to Jesus, you are holy. This is so important for how we treat each other, right? When I get into a conflict with someone else, when I perceive that someone has sinned against me, I am tempted in my mind to define the other person in terms of their sin or in terms of their defense, 
right? If I have been unfairly criticized by someone, or at least in my pride if I feel that I have, there is a temptation that in my mind, I would define the other person with whom I'm in conflict as a fundamentally critical monster. That's who they are to the core, right? That's, they are nothing but a self-righteous, condemning, unappeasable, critical villain, right? I, in my, I wouldn't say that out loud, right, to be clear, right? I would just think it and then deny that I was thinking, right, and then move on quickly, right? I don't, I don't actually, I'm not endorsing this confession of sin here. Okay, we are tempted in our minds, in our sinful hearts, to define other people, to define their status in terms of their sins against us. That's who they are to us. That's their status. But wait a second. What's the status that God has given to his people in Jesus? How does God define who we are? Well, if you're united to Jesus, God defines your status as holy, clean, pure, special, belonging to me. Right? That's how God sees us. God is not unaware that we continue to struggle with sin. But because we're united to Jesus... God classifies us most fundamentally, yes, as someone who still struggles with real bad sin, but he declares us fundamentally to be holy because at the deepest level, we have been both forgiven and changed, definitively sanctified by Jesus. If you're bothered by another Christian's sin or if you're bothered more appropriately by your sin, Christian, your sin will not define you forever. The death blow of your sin and your brother's sin, your sister's sin has been struck by the crucifixion of Jesus. One day you'll be free. One day your brothers and sisters will be free from their sin. Don't define them in terms of it. God defines us as holy and pure. Paul reminds us if we would live well together, that's how we have to see each other, right? Not to pretend that others don't sin, but to define one another as God does, as fundamentally clean, purified, holy, still struggling, yes, but not defined by their sin. Equally, I think by reminding us of our holy status, Paul is urging us to turn away from the sins that are unbefitting, to holy people. We're to turn away, particularly of the sins against one another that threaten communion with a holy God, right? Bitterness, pride, slander, unforgivingness. Those things are unholy. Those things, things no longer define us because we're united to Jesus and they have no rightful place in our lives. We are to put them off, to put them to death. Paul tells us in verse 12 that we are chosen ones, holy and that we are, what does it say? Beloved. Christian, listen. God loves you. That's why he gave Jesus for you. Christian, when you interact with other Christians in your family, in this church, in another church, you must remember that you are interacting with someone who is dearly beloved to God. So how should chosen, holy, beloved Christians treat one another? Well, in some, we should treat one another like God has treated us. We should treat one another with the love of Christ, with the love that we've been shown through Jesus. Look with me at the specific qualities that Paul calls us to put on there in verse 12. We're going to make it all the way to the end of the verse within the next two minutes, Lord willing. Put on then, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. One commentator describes this phrase as a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. Compassionate hearts. What's next? Kindness. Kindness involves an attitude of favor that seeks someone else's good. Humility, 
Paul says. Right? Humility is not making much of yourself. Not insisting that you receive the attention, but in love giving it to other people. Sometimes humility looks like listening instead of talking. Sometimes humility means making the conversation about someone else instead of yourself. Sometimes humility means serving in ways that are inconvenient for you. Next quality there, meekness. Meekness. Meekness is self-controlled gentleness. It's mildness. It's sensitivity in order to care well for the hurting. Put on meekness. What's the last quality there in verse 12? Patience. Our brother Eric Williams pointed this out to me. Last week, remember how we thought we we're to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk? Well, we put off those things by putting on everything that Paul says here, but especially by putting on patience. A patience means slowness to anger. Patience doesn't mean being a doormat, uh, but it can mean a humble willingness to endure mistreatment in order to do someone else good. A patience means not lashing out or withdrawing to hurt or biting back the moment someone wrongs you. Uh, brothers and sisters at Franconia Baptist Church, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Man, that all sounds so good. But, but what if someone else doesn't do that for me, right? What if someone else here drops the ball? What, what happens when I'm being humble and someone doesn't appreciate me, right? You get the irony. What happens when instead of being meek, someone hurts me with their words? Well, Paul writes there in verse 13 that we are to be bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, writes Paul. Brother, sister, can you see that God is calling us to treat one another in a way that mirrors the way that he has treated us? God's forgiveness of us is both the motive and the model for our forgiveness of one another. Because whatever our sins against the Lord have been, and let me assure you, they've been greater than whatever anyone else has done to you. God has forgiven us if we are in Christ. God didn't refuse to confront us because he was afraid of a hard conversation. God confronted us in love and in mercy, not ultimately so that he might condemn us, though God's confrontation can be painful. Right? Forgiveness doesn't mean always being nice and positive every single time. But God did confront us in love and in mercy, ultimately, so that he might forgive us. And Christian, you know this, right? God doesn't always sternly confront you about every single sin, every single time. Not because our sin isn't a big deal. Our sin is a big deal. God doesn't always confront us about our sin every single time because we couldn't take it and because he's merciful. God exercises marvelous forbearance or bearing with his children. Haven't you ever looked back at yourself 10 years ago and thought, man, I was so sinful, right? In this or that way. I was so proud. I was so angry. I was so this. I was so that. And you look back and you see that God just bore with you. God didn't leave you 10 years ago. God didn't stomp you into the pavement. He was forbearing and forgiving. Did he act like your sin didn't matter? Absolutely not. Will he continue to help you vigorously put your sin to death until you die? Yes, absolutely. But is he full of forbearance as he does it? 
Yes. Praise God. Brothers and sisters, that's how we must treat one another. Sometimes when we are sinned against, we are called just to overlook. We just absorb in ourselves the cost of the other person's sin. We bring it to God and not to anyone else because it, compared to what I've been forgiven to God, it's not that big of a deal. Other times, we must love and forgive our brothers and sisters by confronting them, by speaking to them about their sin and how it's hurt us, keeping in mind, right, the compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience that Paul calls us to. But whichever route we take, right, the forbearance route, the overlook route, or the confront route, right, Paul is clear that plan A, and there ain't no plan B, is that Christians forgive one another like God has forgiven us. So brothers and sisters, if, if you're having trouble forgiving someone whom you believe has, has sinned against you, and it can be incredibly hard to forgive, if you're having trouble knowing whether to overlook or to confront or how to confront, please, please seek help. Seek help from myself. Seek help from one of the other pastors. Talk to a trusted and mature Christian who will not spread gossip, but who will genuinely help you figure out how to love. First and foremost, seek help from the Lord in prayer. You remember the man from Mark chapter 9? who told Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, one thing I've prayed again and again when I have struggled to forgive people for tiny stuff is, God, I forgive, help my unforgiveness. God, I want to pour on this other person the grace that you've poured on me. Help me to do it. Help me to see my sin against you and their sin against me in their relative seriousness and to extend your grace. Seek help. Seek help from God's people. Seek help from the Lord. And Paul gets at the motive for our forgiveness there in verse 14, wrapping up this first point. Paul says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Recall that the image here is that of clothing, right? Paul tells us to put off the garment of sinful anger. And in its place, we're to put on the clothing of compassion and kindness and the rest. Well, it seems here that Paul is saying that love is the unifying piece of the outfit. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the integrating belt and the main robe and the crown jewel of the church's attire. And right, what else would we expect of a church being renewed in God's image, being renewed in the image of the God who is love? One, one final comment on love here and how that gets worked out in our life together as a church. Love pursues others for relationship. Love pursues others for relationship. Right, that's, that's clearly how God loved us. When we weren't pursuing God, God pursued us so that we might know him, so that we might rejoice in his love. Right, love pursues others for relationship. That's really clear from Paul's comments. Right? Paul assumes that the members of First Church Colossae uh, will spend enough time with each other pursuing obedience to the Lord together that they'll have to be patient with each other. You see what that implies, right? If the only time that you see someone is for 15 seconds on Sunday, it is really easy to be patient and meek, right? You don't need the reminder, right? Be sure when you see that person once a week, every year, no more, no more. You just be meek. I got that. I can do that, right? Not hard. But brothers and sisters, that's not how God loved us. God brought us into relationship with himself. God calls us to sacrificially pursue relationship with others to his glory. And of course, I understand in a church of 70-something members, you can't have relationship with everybody. Of, of course, that's, that's obvious, that's patent. But God does call us to pursue relationships with other believers for their good, 
and for his glory. That's why it's so wonderful that the hospitality team is leading the charge on the potluck on September 25th. Praise God. That's why it glorifies God when we stay and talk and pray with each other after the service is over. Saints, if you can, please don't rush off. Love others after the service by pursuing them for relationship. This is why it's so encouraging to hear when believers are sharing meals with each other during the week and after church. This is why I'm so excited when I hear that church members are meeting up to study through Christian books and to read through the Bible together. That's why the growth groups that meet at the Alice's home and the Glover's home are such a blessing because they facilitate believers pursuing one another for relationship to the glory of God so that our life together reflects the way that God has treated us. And listen, I I understand there is no church that does this perfectly. No church does it perfectly. But let let me encourage you. If what all of us take away from this Bible passage is, man, people aren't pursuing me for relationship like I wish they would, then we won't grow, right? Friends, that didn't stop God from pursuing you. God was unpursued by you when he pursued you for relationship. Go be like the God that saved you. Friends, let your takeaway be this. How can I love others? How can I pursue others for relationship for their good? Yes, for my good too. Yes, I need relationship, absolutely. But for God's glory. How can I love my brothers and sisters in Christ like God has loved me? If you truly love someone, you'll find that compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience They grow in that soil. Above all these, Paul says, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect harmony. Paul says that God's people's life together should be shaped by the love of Christ. That's our first and by far our longest point. Second thing that Paul says should shape our life together as believers is really one of the fruits of the love of Christ. Uh, And that is the peace of Christ. Second thing that should shape the life of God's people together is the peace of Christ. Look there at verse 15. Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So Paul uses that word heart there, the word heart and the word peace, They occur in close proximity, and immediately we think, ah, Paul must be talking about the peace, the inner peace, the stability, and the tranquility, and the security that knowing Jesus brings, the internal peace that comes from having peace with God. So Paul definitely talks about that in other passages. I do not think that that's what he's talking about here. I think what he's talking about is the peace that Jesus creates between the members of his church. Because this is the peace, Paul says, to which we were called in one body. Right? You understand this. With your physical body, I am no doctor, but I understand that good health requires that the members of your body be at peace with one another that they be getting along and not trying actively to destroy one another. Came from WebMD, by the way. Paul seems to be saying that a similar kind of harmony, a similar kind of peace between members that make up a whole ought to characterize God's people, people who have been spiritually united to Jesus and to one another in one body. And so, brothers and sisters, not only ought we to pursue one another for relationship, in our relationships, we ought to pursue obedience to Jesus together. That's God's plan for keeping peace among the body. It's not everyone agree about everything. It's let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts. That word for rule there. Another way to translate that word is arbitrate. 
or even act as an umpire. Hmm. So I think what Paul is getting at is that when we deliberate in our hearts, right? He uses that word hearts there. When you're thinking, when you're planning, when you're feeling about how to act toward other people or how to speak toward other people, Paul is saying that the deciding factor in what you choose to do and what you choose to say, the umpire in your heart should be the peace of Christ. When you're in a conversation with others, you ought to consider, wait, was, does what I'm about to say undermine the peace of the members of Christ's body? And if it does, brother, sister, don't, don't say it. This is, this is a challenging question for me. When you're in a conversation with someone else or a group of people, what rules in your hearts? What's the umpire that determines what you're going to say and not say? Right? Is it a desire to make the witty comment that everyone laughs at? Does that rule in your hearts? That's ruled in my heart before. Right? Is, is a desire to seem spiritual or intelligent or kind or humble or whatever to other people? Is that what rules in your hearts when you're in conversation? Or does a desire to be right and to vindicate the glory of your rightness before God and everybody, does that rule in your hearts when you're in conversation? Or does the peace of Christ rule in your hearts? To use Paul's words from Ephesians, are you eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Not just obedient to preserve the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit, but eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first thing that should shape our life together in Christ is the love of Christ. Second thing to shape our life together is the peace of Christ, the peace that's given by Christ and is proper to the members of his body. Third item that ought to shape our life together, producing the first two, is the word of Christ. The love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ. Look there at the first words of verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in, or perhaps dwell among you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Remember all the way back to Colossians 1 when Paul told the Colossians about how he thanked God for them. He told them that he thanks God for them because the gospel, the word of Christ, it was bearing fruit in them. It was increasing among them. It was bearing fruit in the salvation of others. There, Paul describes the gospel as a life-giving seed that grows and spreads and bears the fruit of eternal salvation, the fruit of likeness to Jesus. Well, here Paul tells the Colossians that that word of Christ or that message about Jesus, and by the way, let me remind you, the whole Bible is one big multifaceted message about Jesus. Paul says the word of Christ ought to dwell in us or among us, uh, richly. As a single Christian man, the brothers with whom I have gotten to be the closest most often over the years have been the brothers with whom I have dwelt or lived. They've been my housemates. Because when you dwell with someone, you are always seeing them. Right? I'm not talking about the hermits. There, you know, there are those. You know, I guess he's still in his room. We should probably check next week. But normally, right, when you dwell with someone, you have very regular contact with them. You're constantly conversing with them in the living room. You're waiting for them to get out of the bathroom. You're passing them when you come out and when you go in. When you're in the kitchen, probably one of them is in the kitchen. When you need to go to the grocery store, one of them often tags a ride along with you to the grocery store. And so your experience of life, for good or for, for ill, is strongly shaped by those who dwell with you, right? Well, Paul is saying that the word of Christ ought to dwell in or among us richly. Right? God's word centered on the message about Jesus, it ought constantly to feature in our thoughts. 
in our decision-making, in our conversations with each other. Saints, this means we have to study God's word. We have to read it. We have to know it. We have to meditate on it as the life-giving word that it is, as our means of communing with the risen Lord Jesus, if the Bible is going to dwell richly among us. Saints, whenever you have occasion to teach or to admonish or correct or challenge one another, and by the way, you are all the time in informal conversation, you are always teaching and admonishing people about something, whether or not you believe in Jesus. That's how we converse with each other. Did you see that movie? Oh, it's a great movie. You should go see it. What is that? That's counsel. Whenever you are teaching and admonishing one another, the foundation of our counsel ought to be not our thoughts and opinions, but the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Right? There's a way to do this that's really falsely pious. Right? I can only talk about the Bible. That's how spiritual I am. That's not what Paul is talking about. He says that we're to do this in all wisdom in verse 16. But in all wisdom, we ought to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And saints, this is why we sing Bible-saturated, word-of-Christ-centered songs. And Lord permitting, we'll do every single stinking Sunday until the Lord Jesus returns so that our lives together and our hearts might be shaped by the word of Christ. That's why it's good to read the Bible every day, that our lives might be shaped by the word of Christ. That's why it's good, not commanded, but it's good to talk about the sermon after the church, after after service, not to evaluate someone else's oratory, right? But to soak your mind and your heart again in God's life-giving word. Saints, if you want to be made like Jesus, if you want our community to look like God commands it to, soak yourself in the word of Christ. Let it dwell in you richly. Read it, study it, talk about it, sing heartily about it, pray it, think about it, think about every facet of your life in light of it. That is God's plan for how we become more like Jesus. God desires that our life together be shaped by the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ. In case there's anything that that leaves out, the fourth thing that Paul says ought to shape our new life together is the name of Christ. The name of Christ. Look there at verse 17. Paul says there, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You understand that to do something in someone's name is to do something as that person's authorized representative or to do something as one under that person's authority. To do something in Jesus' name is to do it because he's your Lord. It's to do it in conscious submission to his lordship, conscious that you represent him to the watching world, authorized to do what you're doing by King Jesus. So saints, whatever you do, do it in the name, do it with glad submission to the Lord Jesus. Are you going to eat later today? I sure hope I am. Eat conscious That King Jesus delights to nourish his people with the food that he created. Are you going to sleep later this evening or perhaps even this afternoon? Go to sleep knowing that King Jesus lets his people rest. That he gives his people rest. That he upholds the world by the word of his power so that you can get some shut eye. Sleep in the name of Jesus Christ. Are you going to speak today? Speak as someone, Christian, who represents the Lord Jesus. Speak the kinds of words that he's authorized you to speak. Words that build up. Words that give grace. Words that are wise. Words that are kind. Words that give life. Are you going to work This week, in a God-glorifying vocation. Then as Paul tells us later in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily 
as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Friend, go to work. Be a parent. Do the dishes. Do whatever you do in word or deed this week in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you going to do anything recreational, which is a code word for fun this week? Do it conscious that King Jesus is the creator of all good things. Have fun in the name of Jesus Christ to be refreshed to his glory for his service. Are you going to serve and love and give and sacrifice this week? Do it because Jesus loved and served and gave himself for and sacrificed for you and because you want to follow him. Are you going to engage in relationships this week? In your relationships, represent Jesus Christ, his love, his holiness, his goodness, his law, his gospel. Represent Jesus in the way you interact. Saints, whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fourth thing that ought to characterize our new life together, the name of Christ. Fifth and final thing that ought to shape our new life together. Did you notice I didn't didn't quite finish verse 17? What does the whole verse say? Thank you, Don. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through him. Let me close here. The fifth and final thing that ought to shape our new life together is thanksgiving through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. I've mentioned a few times now, I'm sorry, I mentioned at the outset of this morning that there is a theme of the doctrine of the union of Christ with believers, union with Christ by faith, that runs throughout the book of Colossians. That theme runs straight through the book of Colossians. And what you can hardly miss, I've said this before, if you read through this short letter to the Colossians, is that the theme of thanksgiving does as well. What appropriate twin themes to run through the book of Colossians. What better thing to be thankful for than that we've been given Jesus, that we get him, that we're in him, that we're united to him, that we belong to him, that he belongs to us, that he's coming back for us. What a good thing to be thankful for. Paul begins this letter, Colossians chapter three, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse three. He says that he and Timothy always thank God because the gospel was believed in Colossae. When he prays for the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 12, he prays that they would give thanks to God the Father for all they've received in Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul urges the Colossians, keep walking in Jesus, rooted and grounded in him, and abounding in thanksgiving. You might have noticed I skipped the final phrase of chapter 3, verse 15. After talking about the peace of Christ, what does Paul say? He says, and be thankful. You might have noticed that for rhetorical effect, I skipped the last phrase of verse 16, where Paul tells us that we're to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And then here, finally, in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says that whatever we do, we're to do it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. Friends, thanksgiving to God through Jesus for Jesus. It's not the whole of the Christian life, but it is a big, fat chunk of it. Paul is not worried that we're going to be too thankful. Right? Paul is not worried that we are going to overdo it giving thanks to God for all that we've received in Jesus. Paul's not worried that our thankfulness is going to outstrip what God has done for us, right? Sometimes you like do something so small for someone and it's like, oh, thank you so much. And it gets like uncomfortable because you just did like this tiny thing. and You're like, stop thanking me. That's not going to happen with what God has done for you in Jesus. Just rush headlong into the thankfulness zone and see what happens, right? Paul's not worried about it. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, 
Make it a habit of being regularly thankful, of verbalizing thanks to God for all that he's given you. The strongest, happiest Christians I know are deeply and regularly thankful for all that God has given them in Jesus. They don't just have thankful feelings that arise unbidden. They practice thanksgiving to God. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, then this is, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means first to acknowledge that there's bad news. And the bad news is that God is love. The Father loves the Son against whom you have sinned. God loves every person that you have hurt. The bad news is that because God is holy and loving, we as sinners have gotten on the wrong side of that love. We are on the side of that love that is wrath against the object of the beloved. Wrath against that which is against the object of the beloved. You understand? The bad news is that God loves goodness and holiness and righteousness and his glory and his son and all the people that you and I have hurt. And that means that we're under his wrath. The bad news is that God is love. But here's what it means to be a Christian. The good news is that God is love. And in his kindness, he has given his own son, Jesus, to bear the just wrath that we deserve for sinning against his love so that anyone who would receive Jesus Christ, who would trust in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to save them, that person will be reconciled to God and brought into a relationship of love with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and all of God's people for all of eternity and would live on earth in humble thankfulness for all that God has given in Christ. If you'd like to learn more about that, please come talk to me after the service. Saints, let's pray now and give God thanks by all that he's done for us in Christ and pray that he'd make us in his image. Let's pray. Father, would you make our hearts truly grateful for all that we have received in the Lord Jesus? God, we acknowledge that our, even our thanksgiving, Lord, is only acceptable to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we could not approach you in your holiness apart from your Son, our Savior Jesus, the King of love. But since we've been united to him, we come boldly before you as your beloved children. And we thank you. Father, thank you for uniting us to Jesus Christ by faith. Thank you for giving us eternal life in your Son. Lord, would you cause our life together here at Franconia Baptist Church to be shaped by the love of Christ, by the peace of Christ, by the word of Christ, by the name of Christ, and by thankfulness through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do these things in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.